and welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I am Steve Magnus and joined, as always, by my good friend, colleague, fellow coach, Jonathan Marcus. John, what is going on, my friend? Man, they can't get rid of us. You know why? Because we're always coming and bringing and giving the people what they want. Yes, you can't. You know, John and I are trying to be anti-fragile, so stick around. And we'll just keep doing this even if five of you guys are listening. But in all seriousness... Or cockroaches. Call us the cockroaches of distance running. (laughs) Can't 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 get rid of of us. (laughs) All right. So speaking of can't get rid of us, if you want more of us for some reason, you can always sign up for the Scholar Program. If you're a listener, you've heard this before. But, you know... It's just bottom line. It's going to make you a better coach. I mean, that's that's what it is. Oh, so and Steve, let's talk about the newest, newest, newest thing that's going to accelerate oh, man. your coaching. This has been a labor of love, months in the making. It's, it's almost ready to drop. I'm so excited. Oh man, are we going to go there? Are we We're going to go okay. there? We got to go there. We got to give the people what we want. We got to go there. Okay. Well, what we have created and developed and all this good stuff is essentially a platform, a way to enhance uh, communication, to get answers right away to your questions. We have put together and developed a server Mm. that will allow everybody in the scholar program to essentially, you know, have text, audio, Video, video, send message board, send some messages, you know, screen, screenshot some training programs. And it goes out to everyone, including John and I right on our phones. And you know what? We see that and we're like, ah, all right. You know, I think I know an answer to this problem. I think I can help out. Let me type in this right away. Bam. Instant feedback. Get discussion going, not only with John and I, but all of the other brilliant minds that are members of the Scholar Program. I mean, this is, to me, this is a game changer in how to make you a better coach because there's often, you know, a disconnect where in coaches' education, it's like, oh, here's some information, and then you take it and run. And what we're doing is saying, you know what, coaching is about communication. We're going to open up that communication so that we can raise our game and all of us become better coaches. That's right. We created the Scholar program server to solve the problem of that coach feeling isolated, not knowing what to do. There's a few coaches out there who are very courageous and take the initiative, reach out to myself or other coaches, kind of do a straw poll, say, and I just had a coach, you know, call me up and ask me, hey, I'm dissatisfied with our warm up and our pre-run and our post-run routines. You know, what things should I be doing? And we talked about stability, mobility, and the goals he was trying to um, achieve with those routines. You know, it's a great 30-minute dialogue, but those are so far and few between. So we said, why can't we build something where we can have the whole community be able to field questions and answers and potential solutions? So it's not just Steve and I. If you're a scholar member in this server, you can interact with other members. You can connect. You can, uh, you know, say, hey, here's how I'm doing it, or here's a problem I'm having. So that way we're 
building a network of coaches digitally across the globe that are interacting in real time, not waiting for a direct message response or an email response or this or that. It's, you know, app, it's an app and it just notification comes up and you can say, oh, I'm seeing how other coaches are solving this uh, stability mobility problem with athletes, integrating speed training or strength training, doing it with your peers. This is game changing. I'm so excited. Steve and I, you know, we spent a long time thinking about this, building this out. So become a scholar now if you haven't, because the value of this program is going to be paid tenfold just with the server. It's great. Yes, yes. And, you know, before we jump into today's topic, you know, this is what John and I are all about. And hopefully you get this. We push the scholar program, but we're really about, you know, John and I every week get together for about 90 minutes on, you know, over phone and on Zoom and think about how can we help other coaches? How can we make things better? And this is that next iteration. And we're always trying to figure out how can we do things uh, to help, you know, the rest of uh, the coaches out there and help you up your game. So this is it. If it sounds intriguing, jump on, give it a, give it a spin, give it a try. Like you're gonna, you know, John and I are, are sitting here waiting for these, uh, some of these messages and interaction to take place so that we can, you know, learn for ourselves and then also pass on some knowledge that we have. Yeah, super exciting. And again, you know, born out of the fact like we couldn't have as much dialogue and interaction at meets the past year and a half, you know, no conferences, right? It's like, where can we have a, a real good supplement where juicy learning can happen in real time? And again, you can drop in whenever you want. So think of it as, you know, the world's best running message board that allows more live interaction. You can use audio, you can use video in real time. Uh, you can just shoot a little text from your phone. You can write a long, you know, three page paragraph post and get response from other like-minded people. Steve and I are the moderators. So we'll make sure like no, no funny business here, but it's invite only to scholar members. So if you've been on the fence or if you were a member, you let your membership lapse, jump back in, rejoin, because you're not going to want to miss this really, really powerful way to level up. All positive, all uplifting. That's what I love about it is we've got uh, good people who are going to help you become better coaches. None of this negative stuff in the rest of the internet world. <laughs> no outrage here. <laughs> Just coaching. Coaching and running, yes. man. Keep it yeah. simple. How do we get better? Mm -hmm. All right. So speaking of you know how to get better, this week's topic. We're going to jump into how to process failure. And I think this is another very important topic to cover because, you know, you think about it. And I was having a discussion with someone outside of the sport earlier in the week about this. Running is one of those sports where you fail, quote unquote, more often than you succeed, right? Because a lot of times people define success as like winning a race or setting a PR or what have you. And what happens is, you know, especially the further along you go in in running, it be, those PRs become fewer and farther between. Those wins become harder and harder to capture and, and, and take down. So failure is just part of the process. And I think often we, we sit here and, and think like, you know, 
talking about failure, talking about how to process failure is almost sign it is seen as this like sign of weakness. But in reality, it helps shape where our motivation, um, you know, willingness to proceed, our ability to learn and take things away from what went right and wrong in a race, like those often determine our future success. So figuring out how to process failure is incredibly important. It's vital. Yeah, the, you know, you hear a lot, we always talk about grit and adversity and resilience and robustness and all these things that we usually wed to like physical action, but the mental emotional component of how we interpret, reframe, reappraise, and are spurred by our failures is something every athlete in every sport and even every person is going to have to have a really healthy relationship with of how to approach and use as fuel to continue down their path versus what's happened. What's really common is you meet that failure and it's very easy just to shut down and shut off and push the eject button and say, Oh, I'm done. I'm no good. I'm not going to even pursue this career path, this, um, you know, goal I had set out anymore just because it's so clear that I suck. But I remind people of this, you know, um, is and think about it like I was really bad at pre-algebra. Like I was great numbers. They made sense. And then all of a sudden we're throwing letters in with numbers. What the heck is going on? <laughs> I It was like I just my development in math just got boom, hit by a brick wall. But I struggled through pre-algebra and some of my peers picked up really quick on it and they had no problem. They were just flying through. But then pre-algebra became algebra. It became trigonometry, pre-calculus, it became calculus. And all of a sudden, my senior year of high school, I found myself in an AP calculus class thriving. But had I just threw in the towel and said, math's not for me at pre-algebra, I would never have been able to get to that AP credit calculus, you know, get AP credit on the test and really be able to be comfortable with the ambiguity that calculus has, which is related to physics and be able to have that more fluid mindset. So that's, you know, something you got to remember sometimes initially when you meet a, a roadblock to understanding or a roadblock to, uh, or, or don't pass a certain benchmark. It's like Michael Jordan, right? Got cut from his varsity basketball team his sophomore year and he just says point blank I just wasn't good enough so I had to get better and that's how we can use failure at its highest to help motivate inspire and level ourselves up yep exactly so why don't we go through some of the stuff that might help us like deal with and process failure and I think you hit something uh you know spot on there John when you talked about when we feel failure, we can almost, you know, go into this defensive state, right? And the way I kind of look at it is whenever we we struggle or fail at something, we can go one of two ways. You can either go into this defensive mode where you start rationalizing, you start justifying, you start seeing the failure as an attack on your sense of self or your identity, right? And, and as coaches, we see these athletes all the time, right? They almost get defensive, like, oh, no, I, it wasn't my fault. I did this. Or, 
you know, they start, they, they like come back at you. Um, they attack when they get failed because they feel threatened. So we can either go into this threat defensive mode or more productively, we can go into this like learning slash acceptance mode, which means you step back from the high emotions that come with it and all of that stuff. And you're able to like see clearly and then move forward and say, hey, this really sucked. I went through this. You know, it didn't come out as as I hoped or planned. Um, but there can be lessons to take away. I can grow from this. I can improve. So I think really, you know, step one when I'm looking at, okay, if we're going to try to learn from failure, it's really making sure initially we get on the right path, which is getting out of that defensive state and into this kind of learning acceptance acceptance objective state and it's you have to realize as a coach it's really easy to have athletes go into this defensive state because if they lost a race or performed really poorly or bombed in a in a competition like it's again it's a threat to their sense of selves but it's also like they're they lose a bit of their status on the team right so it's understandable why they feel this kind of you know, angst or anger or frustration, what you need to do as a coach is figure out, okay, like how do I get them to process, understand, and then switch out of that to a more productive state where we can start analyzing, learning, and growing from it. And this is what we call ad adaptation, right? It's the fact that like failure is always the precursor towards success. And, you know, there's this idea of like failing forward, right? Or failure is a gift. And as a coach, we are trying to educate and expand an athlete or individual's um, understanding and perception and interpretation of the world from the default, right? So the default is what you described, Steve, is like, oh, I'm defensive. I don't want to accept it. I'm, you know anger, frustration, but what is the anger? What is the frustration? Why is that fear? Because those are manifestations of fear um, coming to the surface. And so then as a coach, it's a really ripe opportunity to get vulnerable with the athlete or have the athlete get vulnerable, create that safe space where you've hopefully pre-established some trust and then say, what are you really afraid of here? So why are you upset? Why are you frustrated? Did you just, you know, want to win to get very superficial accolades or do you feel like if you don't run this time, you can't get a scholarship and you can't go to college, you know, and really getting at the heart of these things and addressing that fear. And what I like to do is, you know, have athletes run towards it and not run away from it because running towards it, that's actually the first step in one of the things that conquers failure and but get six further uh, future success is courage. And we lack a lot of courage uh, initially because we just we don't know how to emotionally process failure. And this is what sport teaches us. It's a safe space to try things out, to do our best, go for it, see how we stack up in that moment, but then reappraise and reframe the interpretation of the result and say, okay, what was the failure of? 
you know, it was a failure of a result, right? So was it a failure? And then I like to go through and down a list of different things that could potentially be a failure of and the severity of that failure. So was it a failure of process? Was it a failure of focus? Was it a failure of execution? Was it a failure of confidence? Was it a failure of hydration, nutrition? Was it a failure of time management? All these different things it could be a failure of. And then as a you know coach, what I like to give to the athletes saying, I'm not judging you as a person. I'm not saying you're good or bad. You just were ill-equipped to meet this demand. And we want to understand why. So the next time you face this type of demand, you're better equipped. And this bookends nicely into what training is all about, right? See, workouts, as you famously say, are designed to embarrass the system, embarrass the organism. And without that embarrassment, you know, we can't adapt and get better. Yeah. I mean, that's that's literally what it is. If you simplify everything, it is adaptation. You know, and workouts, we're adapting to a physical stressor. If we're looking at, you know, quote unquote failure, we're adapting to a physical and psychological stressor and saying, hey, can we handle this process it, make it sen- sense of it? And we say when we say process it, right, a lot of times we're talking about psychologically processing it, which is essentially the same thing, you know, that the body does after workouts physically, right? Your body gets better once it like processes the workout and says, Hey, you know, we got, we got embarrassed in this direction. Like let's shore up our abilities so that we can handle this, um, more so. So you create all these proteins or whatever have you at the molecular level to shore things up. Same thing occurs psychologically when we're looking at dealing with stressors like failures, we have to process things so that we are in a place to learn, adapt and grow from it. And I think, you know, one of the, th- the points you made there of getting to a point of trust, right, and vulnerability is how much the culture you create plays a part in how your athletes process and handle failure. Because a lot of us talk about, you know, hey, failure's all right. Like you have to fail to succeed. You know, you said fail forward, all these nice little slogans. But what really matters is like how, what are you creating? What are you incentivizing? What are you rewarding, right? Do you blow up and get super angry at someone who took a risk and failed in a, in a race? If you do, then you are disincentivizing failure. You are ingraining like fear because it's like, wait a minute, I took a risk. I'm, I, I failed, but this is the risk that coach wants me to take. And instead, I get reprimanded for it. Like, I'm never going to take that risk again. Like, I'm going to play it safe, right? So you almost have to create this culture as a coach where you give permission for athletes to try and fail at certain things, right? And if they did, then you don't get up- upset at them. You don't yell at them. You say, hey, I'm proud of you for giving it a go. I'm proud of you for taking that chance in this spot. It didn't work out. Now let's maybe look at why didn't it work out so that next time when you take that risk, you're in a better spot. But what you don't want to do is just come down on them and be like, oh man, you were supposed to finish here and you finished you know, this far below, even though I told you to take this risk and like go out at this pace or go out with these individuals, 
you got to reward the executing of the strategy of like going for it and not like send the message that you know the end result the failure the quote unquote failure is the thing to fear or else you create this culture that you know failure is to avoid it to be avoided no matter what you say it's the actions that you take that get ingrained with the kids that you're coaching yeah geez that's such an important point steve i love you know love that and it's it's about to the immediacy and the responsiveness that you address failure or do not right and one of the things about failure and the fear of failure is it is masked and also um, perpetuated by perfectionism and procrastination, right? So the procrastinating perfectionist is one, you know, personality trait type. I think anytime anyone who's doing a creative endeavor or trying to build something or wanting to, you know, bear their condition struggles with and is frustrated by because you put um, preconceived limits on yourself say oh only when i am six you know six pounds lighter with washboard abs and i've done a hundred miles a week for you know six months and this and that can i then can i give myself permission to try to you know run this time so instead of the reality is life is about exploring discovering and learning so when we create this perfectionist, you know, uh, procrastination ideal or, or, or archetype in our head, we then, you know, are no longer having that kind of open, curious mindset of let's explore and see what I can do. Let's discover and see what I can do. Let's learn from these actions that I took or that were taken and then be able to digest them to better inform future actions. So I learned, and that's the only way we learn, right? Is through this experimentation process. I mean, all of life is basically a big science experiment, right? <laughs> essentially. So, you know, it's being an action taker is a really important thing. And it starts with the coach. So like that debrief that you have with the athlete, when is that debrief after that failure moment happening? Is it happening immediately after, you know, the rep? or the race, or are you giving a little space and time, but happening within a 24 hour period. Sometimes I have like a digestion period for athletes. I say, Hey, look, we're not going to talk about it. You just went through a lot, you know, getting ready for this. You're really disappointed. I am too, uh, for you. Um, you know, you didn't prepare and do all this training to have that type of failure of a result. And I, you know, I get it, but you know, take a, take a night, digest it, think about it, you know, come to, you know, a meeting tomorrow or check in office hours, phone call, what have you, um, with some identifications of what that result, that poor result in your mind was a failure of. And then, you know, just going through that list and that inventory of those different items. And then you can have a dialogue and then actually reflection and learning happens and you reframe it as, hey, it's not forever. It's just for now. Versus if you're sitting there screaming and telling this person, we need these 10 points or you, you know, you're, you have this contract and you're this type of athlete and you have to do this and you're just badgering and belligerent at them. That's actually a failure 
of the coach, as you identified, and failure of culture, because it's the wrong, t- you're, you're basically taking your own fear of, for whatever reason, this lack of success of this one athlete or this group of athletes, and then how that's going to be interpreted by, you know, your boss or, you know, your colleagues or peers or the social zeitgeist or whatever, and then then laying that on top of the athlete's own feelings of frustration. And so now you're compounding the whole circumstance, right? So that's where we as coaches also have to be models and be really, really good models, especially even when we are pissed off, frustrated, upset, not only for the athlete, but also like thinking back like, oh, why did I spend all this time and energy investing in this person if they're just going to show up to race day and just lay fat turds all the time? <laughs> it's it's super tough. Uh, but that debrief is really important and you know now actually becomes even more valuable in this space of failure because all, a lot of times when you have success, you're just like, yeah, everything went great. I just want to do that over again. You know, like we, you know, warmth was good. Self-talk was good. Hydration was good. Nutrition was good. Decision-making was good. Staying on task was good, you know, because you had this great success and you get that rose-colored glasses and you don't really learn that much from success, but failure is a ripe, ripe learning opportunity. And we, it's best we take full advantage of it. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you outlined some of that stuff because I think it's important to like, you know, figure out what is your process as a coach for, for addressing and understanding some of these things. And, you know, my own process is like, first you have to understand the athletes you're working with. So understand how they take on and address success and failure because some, and you know, we all know this as a coach, some will, after a really bad race, like, you know, they come in storming mad and they're frustrated and emotions are on high and they're angry and just, you know, when they're in that kind of state and mode, your job as a coach is like, okay, how do I help this athlete get out of this place? You know, let everything settle. So then, then we can have a productive conversation. What you don't do is go right up to that person and stoke that fire. You don't sit there and be like, Oh, like this person's really angry. So I'm going to tell them you did A, B, C, and D wrong. What were you doing here? Why did you do these things? No, no, no. You got to get them out of that space. So it's understanding what athlete, you know, what athlete you have, how do they generally react? Other athletes, you might have to build up before you have this kind of debrief session meaning failure like really hits them home when they have a poor race. You know, maybe they even cry a bit or like are really emotionally down. You don't want to then go straight in and be like, you should have done this, this, and this, and this. Come on, learn and grow from it. It's not a big deal. Like you've got to build them up and get them out and like be that shoulder where you're saying, hey kid, it's all right. Like you did your best effort. And then later come back you know, come back to it and say, okay, now what can we learn from it? So what I do as a coach is I, I kind of pay attention to like a, how they tend to handle things. And then as I'm walking to the finish line of the cross country course, or I'm waiting for them to come around to the other side of the track after the race, I'm like watching their reaction, seeing how they responded and then saying, okay, like what's my immediate go-to? Do I support? Do I lift up? 
Do I say, hey, it's all right, or, you know, great job. Hey, you did this, this, and this right. That's fantastic. Like, what's my my quick approach? And then from there, it's okay. Do I address these things right away, or do I give them need to give them time and space? And a lot of times, it's A, you know, give them a quick hit. Hey, that was a great job. You gave, or like you gave a lot of effort out there. I love that effort, even even if it didn't turn out, you know, great. You give them some quick hit there or some support. And then you give them a little bit of time to process. You know, a lot of times what I'll I'll tell athletes, again, it depends on the person, is, you know, after a tough race, I'll be like, give a couple quick pointers or give them support, but then say, hey, why don't you go cool down? And then after you cool down, like we'll talk about it because that gives them some time to process some time to let the emotions, you know, good and bad, you know, dissipate a little bit. And I'll also often give some time to like talk it out with friends or their teammates or vent a little bit. And that gets them in a better space when they're done with their, you know, two mile cool down. Then they come back. Then we can have a good productive conversation. So it's it's kind of figuring out what athlete, what you're working with, where their responses are in that moment, what you need to give initially, and then like create that space for that athlete so they can they can be in a place where you can start that process of learning and growing and have that that conversation or debrief after. I love that, Steve. It's so delicate and you know multi-layered and brilliant because there's a lot going on from a you know dynamic level uh, in the athlete, in the person's interpretation of the events that just transpired and what to do. And I think at the end of the day, right, we as coaches hopefully are coaching people more towards autonomy and being autodidactic and self-learners who can explore the depth of who they are and why they responded the way they did. But then also we come in and help them give a better reappraisal, reframing of the situation and events that just transpired. And a mentor of mine reminded me of this, um, you know, a couple years ago is like, we coaches are actually in the failure business. That's actually the business we're in because you, we will in, see far more losses than we will victories. And so most people think, oh, you judge a coach based on their wins. It's not that. It's how did you take failure and use failure and then reinterpret and establish failure as the springboard towards success? Because that's the hardest thing. And a lot of my coaching career has been going into very dilapidated uh, environments, whether it's trying to turn a program around or taking athletes who people thought, oh, they weren't that good and developing them into steady national class caliber, um, caliber runners who never were multi-time All-Americans or national champions or what have you, right? So it's there. People are very malleable, but it depends on you and it depends on your stance as the coach. So if we say, all right, we're in the failure business, then what we have to realize is like seeing the models and energy that people who are had those big program turnarounds and sustained success after the program turnarounds did and what not necessarily the tactics they had employed but the strategies so the one that's always top of mind to me is bill walsh i've studied bill walsh a lot why because when he took over the 49ers and his history is great like he, he was passed up multiple times for a head coaching job 
you know, at the um, professional level, you know, his key mentor, Paul Brown, said, you're not ready. And, you know, he wandered and thought was coaching right for me. He went and coached back at collegiately, stepping down from the NFL to coach at Stanford. When Stanford at that time was a football program in the uh, late or early 70s, it was no good. Then got an opportunity to coach the 49ers, who absolutely sucked. They were the laughingstock organization of the NFL, the worst. Um, and for several years, just floundered, right? Didn't get the wins, but he had to rebuild the organization from scratch, essentially. You know, the owner gave him carte blanche to do that. And so the process and expectation of how we're going to dress, how we're going to act, how we're going to interact with each other, how we're going to, you know, run practices. You know, he was one of the first coaches to realize I can't push these professional athletes to the well and limit every day. They're going to get fatigued, which means they're going to get hurt. And so he had a limited roster of talent. And he's like, I can't get this, these, this talent hurt because second string, third string is not that good. So, you know, he designed that kind of like West Coast offense and he emphasized fresh first. Being fresh is better than being tired and overworked. Um, and over time, he became arguably one of the greatest NFL coaches of his generation. It wasn't about football or NFL. To me, studying him is about a complete 180 culture turnaround. But early on, that success wasn't there. Early on, the first few seasons, it was three wins, you know, 12 losses, brutal stuff. And he, like all of us who are in coaching, we're really competitive and we want victory. We want, you know, positive results for our actions and for our investment of time and energy. So what did he bring? And things that stuck with me is he brought a continual enthusiasm for the people. He invested in the people. He got to know the athletes as human beings. He would, you know, he would ask them, what's your favorite food? What's your uh, restaurant? You know, what's your favorite type of wine? You know, try to find things you could relate at um, with each person. And I've done this with athletes as well. I've asked them, um, you know, hey, what's your favorite restaurant in the area or favorite pizza place? You know, if you're, you're working with kind of high school athletes. And then actually go out and try and taste and explore those uh, places they recommend. And I'd come back to practice and be like, gosh, it was so good. You were so right. That taco truck is amazing. Like, but then they feel a little bit more connected to you. So when you have that difficult dialogue about failure and reframing and reappraisal, that trust is there. That trust is, um, you know, fully invested. So when you're in the failure business, it's not about like, oh, we're going to, you know, go out, go out here to lose every time. But we're going to use all this as a exploration, as an experiment on how to get us better. And a really good book is uh, Failure that talks about this and why science is so successful. And essentially talks about why the scientific method is a method, you know, uh, built and predicated on reappraising, interpreting and digesting failure. It's by Stuart Feistein from Columbia University. Uh, and Again, it's something that's very applicable to what we're doing in coaching and leadership and something I suggest anyone and everyone pick up and um, interact with because you'll learn a lot. Love it. I'm going to have to check that book out as well. So I have not read that one. John's always. Oh, my goodness. I finally have a book. So it was not read. Well, it was amazing. Look at, look at that. Look at that. Stop. <laughs> 
that means I gotta gotta pick it up and read it so that I'm on board. But I agree, you know, I haven't read that book, but you know, if I got on my science soapbox real quick, this is this is the beauty of science. It's not perfect, but what it does is it allows us to see failure in a different light and almost a more productive light that takes us away from like the defensiveness of it, right? Because you're literally trying to see how your ideas could actually be wrong. And that is something that in the real world is often, again, often puts us in like this defensive mode where we resist change. In science, that change is seen as like a positive, like, oh my gosh, like this prior theory that we had is incorrect. Like we were, we were wrong on this, like great celebrate that we were wrong and figured out like the new path forward. Like let's go forward and then let's test these ideas to make sure that they're, you know, on the right path and see if they quote unquote fail or not. And it's this continual process. So what we have to do as human beings is realize that, you know, we've got to do the work to create our own kind of coaching system where where, you know, we're almost scientific to degree where we kind of embrace these twists and turns of our own performance so that we can, you know, find the, the right way or right path to get on. Because the only way you find that path, as science shows, is you try a whole, di- a whole lot of different paths and see what ones work and what ones don't. And if they don't work, you like throw them to the side and move on to the next one and try the next path. And that's, that's what it's about. And I think if we create this fear of failure side, what you're doing is you're essentially taking one path, praying to God that it's the right path and just like putting blinders on and being like, nope, I don't see those other paths over there. I'm just going to like keep going ahead. So it, it's really this kind of mindset, you know? It's true. And yeah, they actually, there's a quote that, um, you know, is synergistic with what you just explained, Steve, on page 174. And here's the quote from this book. It's, you know, virtually all theories are falsified in some point at time. Science is just a series of provisional findings that, you know, slowly but surely moves us closer and closer to a truth that might never fully be attained. But the provisional iterations are valuable, even though they will prove to be ultimately wrong. They shouldn't be discarded. And what we should um, can say about failure is it's a continual part of the, any scientific activity. And if it's missing, then the likelihood that such an activity can be regarded as science is severely diminished. And I think this rings a really true, this last sentence, for our sport in the drug culture that unfortunately is so prevalent at the highest level is one should be more suspicious of extravagant, sustained, perpetual success than regular failure. And that's one of the key things I think when, you know, I get down and frustrated is I love to celebrate the athlete who's had failure, bombed a big race, came back and, you know, had a successful outing. Sarah Hall is a really good example of that throughout her career, as you well know, Steve. And then there's other athletes who they never seem to have a bad race ever, no matter what. And they race different distances, physiologically not compatible throughout the year. And you're like, how are they just always on fire? 
you know, to me, that's not real. To me, that's a little bit aided and enhanced. Like we'd love to believe that narrative, but it's just not true. Failure is a key part of the human and athlete experience. And it's something to be celebrated and recognized and used, not something to shun, be afraid of, and kind of turn our back on. Yeah, you know, I, I'm glad you bring that up because I think that is, you know, it's unfortunate that often we create this unrealistic expectation that, you know, the best of the best never lose or never fail or never have a, a rough race, right? And we, as coaches, often hold that up as the model of like, oh, look, like these people always show up. They always are on like you're capable of that too little jimmy or johnny and that's you know unfortunately it's not reality you know it it's not it just doesn't it just <laughs> it just doesn't happen you know we both of you and i have worked with you know world class level talent and athletes and you know they all bomb and you know sarah hall is a great example because you know what Sarah ran really well under Terrence Mahon and bombed under Terrence. She ran really well under Dina Evans and had some horrible races under Dina. She ran really well in several races under me and some had some horrible races. She ran, she's run really well under Ryan Hall, her husband, and had some just like complete blowups. Right. She didn't make the Olympic team in the marathon. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's... It and that's 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 like human, and it like it doesn't matter. You know, she's phenomenally talented, but it doesn't matter what coach you have, like what like program you're running. Like she's a human being who races a lot, and like we'll wear we'll have those ups and those downs, and get hit with you know some tough times, and then bounce back. And you know that's the model that we should be looking for because like Sarah, what does she always do? She like learns from it. Like the marathon is a great example is she struggled initially, like learned from it and has continued to learn from it and refine it and continue to have some marathons in there where you're just like, Ooh, that was a rough one, you know, but then she comes back and then improves upon it and figures it out. And that's, that's what it's all about. You know, we sit here and, and talk about failure and you can be like, again go the slogan route but the reality is like athletes like sarah and there's lots of other examples but you know we just know this one intuitively um there's lots of other examples of just athletes who you know who go through this and there's example of athletes or coaches who seem to always have it on and always seem to have it perfect and it's just not just just not real most of the time it's just it's incredibly difficult it doesn't work like that, even for some of the most talented athletes on the planet. This is 100% true. I mean, sport and life is really hard. And a lot of times these performance reviews, whether it's in the corporate setting or whether it's, you know, in the athletic setting, you know, we have daily performance reviews, you know, with athletes, essentially with how they're feeling and how training's going and their interpretation of it and weekly with workouts and then bigger ones with races, right? You know, in the corporate world, you have these like quarterly performance reviews or maybe your one-on-one -on -one meetings. And the, the thing is, is, is to be afraid of failure, to like, you know, not want that low mark and not get that feedback. Or the worst thing is you, only, you get that performance review once a quarter or once a year. And then 
this is where your you know superior then tells you oh you're inadequate in all these places and it's like well why didn't you tell me that like during the year so i could be work on it like you're just telling me now this makes no sense and this is i think the hardest thing to coach is it's great when you have someone who has an inherently resilient mindset like a sarah hall who can take you know the uh you know their licks but bounce back from it better and that's great most of us have to work with athletes and people who don't have as strong of confidence and relationship with their ability to rebound and where failure is a big point of anxiety and fear. And, you know, whether they think, oh, I'm going to let down all my supporters or my coach or myself or people will see this time or this mark and make bad judgments about me. And, you know, I'll lose some social currency or credit, what have you. Right. So that to me is the hardest work as a coach is working with an athlete to get them to have a healthy and um useful relationship with failure. And, you know, Steve, I'd love to hear some of the ways that you have in the past work with, you know, athletes to kind of bridge that gap between this fear of failure, anxiety of failure towards more of a healthy respect and appreciation of failure to use failure as fuel rather than as a um, corrosive uh, thing to be ignored. Yeah, you know, I think this is one of the central jobs as us as coaches, honestly. It, it, you know, especially for high school and college coaches uh, in particular. Because oh, without like, doubt, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something that they're going to take away for the rest of their lives. This isn't just like, hey, here's four years of running or eight years of running. Like, learn this stuff and you'll get faster. These are These are life lessons. So I think this is incredibly important. And unfortunately, a lot of athletes or a lot of people have a um, a poor understanding or poor relationship with failure. And I think that is largely societal and the pressure and expectations that come on kids uh, nowadays in, in the, the global world that we live in where we expect people to like be perfect, to look perfect, to have their you know, Instagramification of their life. So it seems like everything's working out well. And so you have to know that going in and especially working with college athletes over the last few years, like I saw this very clearly. And the other part of it is you have to realize that a lot of these athletes are used to success or have their parents are used to su success. So when they're in a position where they don't succeed, it can almost cause this like fragmentation so or this identity crisis, right? So wh what I try and do is just kind of reinterpret or rework their relationship with failure. It starts with knowing what the athlete, who the athlete is and looking at, you know, how they currently handle things. I look at, you know, how they take on losses or tough workouts like do they have anxiety, angst after? Do they put a lot of pressure and expectations on themselves? Where does that pressure and expectations come from? Their family? Is it from their parents? Is it from themselves? Is it from, you know, social media? You know, you look at what they post on social media and how much like worth they seem to get from like Instagram likes or Twitter likes or 
Strava kudos, whatever it, whatever it is, like you can start to see the pattern on, on, on their behavior and their kind of reward from that. And that, that like starts the stage or sets the stage that gives you the information where you say, okay, like this person derives their, their success or their sense of self from like these couple things that are kind of fragile. Maybe it's from parents or external expectations. I've got to go to work to get them to have kind of what I call a more secure like sense of, of who they are so that they're, uh, when failure knocks on their door, they don't take it as like, oh my gosh, I have no worth. I have no value. Like I've been exposed. My status is decreased, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like really doing the work to, to help athletes like see themselves as more than just runners to like see themselves and treat failure as part of the process to grow. And as a coach, like you have to be very true to that. And I think this is the most difficult thing because I can have, you know, at the University of Houston, when I was coaching there, what we would do is we would have what I call weekly small group meetings. And we'd have like four or five athletes all in a group come into my office. This was pre-COVID. And we just talk about stuff. Sometimes we'd have like a discussion. Sometimes we'd have a reading. A lot of times when it was in the season, we talk about races and how we handle things. And more often than not, we talk about like some of these topics around like, you know, sense of self and failure and how to process it and like motivation and how to keep it grounded. And that sets the stage really when you're just talking and discussing this, but then your action as, as a coach have to reflect that. So what does that mean? You know, I'm a highly competitive person, even as a coach, but I have to realize and recognize that, you know, I can't put my competitiveness or my expectations onto the athletes that I'm guiding. So if I sit there and I blow up on them or get really angry at them after a tough loss, you know, what is that? What is that ingrained? What message does that that send? You know, it might make me feel better for a moment of like, yeah, look at me. Like I was a hard ass to these these kids who didn't do what they were supposed to do, like who didn't show up and perform. But like over time, that doesn't do me any good. Right. Over time, that just says like oh shit, like coach gets really mad at us when we lose. So now I'm going to play, I'm going to perform out of place of fear of losing or fear of failure. The same thing happens, you know, if we step outside of our, our coaching world and we look at parenting styles, done a t- even though I'm not a parent, like I've done a ton of research on parenting styles for uh, looking into the research for some projects. And if you look at it, it's pretty, it's, it's actually pretty astonishing and pretty clear that the like hard ass authoritarian disciplinarian style of parenting fails in the one place, especially, I mean, it fails in a lot of places, but it fails in the one place that you expect it to work, which is discipline. So parents with who are extreme authoritarians and the research backs this up across countries like their kids do not have as as good of 
discipline or have more discipline problems in school than parents who are more uh, nurturing and supportive and, 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 and such. And why does that occur? You know, the research is pretty clear on this too, and it's, it's pretty straightforward. Your kid, if you are disciplining him and being a hard ass and authoritarian and a dictator, you know, to your child all the time, what happens? The child stops doing that thing when you're there out of fear, but he doesn't, he or she doesn't learn to, to not do that thing because it's like the right decision for like him or her and the family, right? You've created this, this individual that says, oh man, when dad's, dad's watching, like I shouldn't do this, but you know, if he's not watching, if I can get away with this, if I can figure out ways how to get around this and still do this thing that I want to do without my parents finding out, then I'm going to do that. So it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And I think that's why there's a lot of overlap between parenting and coaching. But the bottom line is be aware of what message you're sending and be aware of what, act, what your actions are ingraining. Because if you do that, you're going to be in a better place where you can help athletes create this better relationship with, with kind of failure um, overall. Yeah, that command and control style of leadership, whether it's parenting or coaching, um, does have short-term results, right? You create this culture of compliance, but the feeling of that culture of compliance is a feeling of fear, right? You're only compliant out of fear. I'm going to get knocked for attendance. I'm going to get knocked for not doing this. And while in the short run, you may get people to do exactly what you want them to do, what happens is it creates an erosion and corrosion of culture and interpersonal relationships. There's no trust, you know, because what you're essentially saying is you are, it's kind of Taylorism, right? Um, in the factory worker, it's like, you're just a cog in the wheel and you need to do as I say, cause I'm the boss and I'm the one in control. And if you don't do it, you know, there's going to be consequences or repercussions. So do it or else. Right. And sometimes you have to have that stance and you have to, you know, just, Hey, if it's a really, uh, you know, vital safety's at stake, don't think you just need to do this for sure. You can have that command and control um, air about you. But if it's every day on the daily and people are showing up to practice afraid of what the coach is going to say or afraid of, you know, what the boss is going to um, comment on their work, over time, it just creates a very, you know, toxic culture. And that's unfortunately, you know, we see nowadays more than ever and things that always come to light on social media is these toxic work environments and toxic cultures that we didn't even knew existed. And one athlete or one employee or, you know, manager finally speaks up because they've gone through all the internal channels to know success to address this. And it's far more prevalent, unfortunately, than it should be. But that's where, again, how we think about and address failure. And I love the small group meetings. You know, I, we have like among us coaches, uh, you know, in our our peer group, basically an informal failure club, right? Like I'll call up Steve or, you know, Danny or Mike Smith will call me up and go, I suck. <laughs> and then we'll go through why we suck at what we're doing and coaching, right? And essentially just having someone else who's in the trenches 
um, be a part of the process of creating solutions. And that's the beauty of that small group meeting, Steve, is, you know, you you're giving people an outlet and a vehicle that they could depend on with regularity to be able to air grievances or frustrations or, or venting because of the shared space you had. I had that when I was coaching uh, at the high school level early on in my career, we had this breakfast club and it wasn't just about doing all these like, um, you know, weight room activities, uh, you know, stretches, mobility exercises, you know, plyometrics, et cetera. That was a big part of it. That was the shared experience that, hey, we're all going to challenge ourselves and do something hard in the morning before school starts. But it also eventually became a place where like we would have those dialogues amongst that group of, uh, you know, young high school athletes because it was a small group setting. It wasn't too big. It was about a core of 10 to 15 athletes. Um, who showed up with regularity, they got to know each other, cross-disciplinary, the throwers, some sprinters, some jumpers, um, who usually wouldn't spend time together in the practice setting, um, you know, working on their discipline. But they all shared that common breakfast club space, and they're there for the same reasons. They wanted to get better. And so this created a bond, and that bond then created trust. And then there was a lot of opening up and discussing saying, oh, yeah, I'm having trouble with, you know, my spin technique here or, you know, coach, you know, move me to a, you know, a fewer step count on the hurdles. And I'm really having trouble with this. Right. You know, just simple things like that or even just people being, oh, I'm afraid of this test or this exam or this paper or this project. And other athletes came with other solutions or even if you didn't come with solutions, you just came for support. You just came to listen. And that's, I think, sometimes too in the failure um, process and um, process or in the failure processing process is also just being open to listen. Because so many times as coaches, we're like, all right, we want to solve your problem. Here you go. Here's the answer. Here's the solution. Versus sometimes just being quiet and going, man, yeah, that sucks. I get it. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I've been there too. And like creating that empathy and compassion relatability is key because it will then allow the athlete to be more receptive to the uh, direction you point them in to create or self-create that solution rather than just giving them the keys or opening the door for them and then pushing them through. Yeah. I mean, those are some great points, John. I think that's that it it really is. I mean, what you're talking about right there is like empowering, you know, athletes, right? Which is what it's about. Like you're empowering and uh, and giving them the tools to be able to like choose and figure out the direction that that they're going. And that's like that's what it's all about as a coach. Like it's not about like always dictating and giving the answers. It's about providing the tool set, the resources, the security uh, for them to like continue on in their their journey and get on the whatever the right path is or find the right path. And if I'm thinking through all this and what we're talking about failure, I mean this is this is what it's about. It's about like a how do I put this person in position? Right. Give them the space, the security, the tools to to utilize, to process these things. And then once they have those tools, how do I nudge or give them the right information 
to learn, grow, adapt. And if we can do those things and we put people in a in a situation and environment where they're going to get they're going to get better and not only get better in the sense of running, but get better in the sense of like handling adversity and navigating discomfort and difficulty, which is, you know, about the best lesson that we can give in sports that applies for, you know, not only the couple of years they're in our hands, but for hopefully the rest of their lives. Yeah. I mean, you, you said some words there that are really important that have over the years, you know, just become more weighted with import for me. And one of those is environment, right? And this idea of nature versus nurture and how important nurture is. And, you know, the environment we create as leaders, as coaches, is just as important as the tasks we ask people to do to get better or to get the job done, whatever it may be. And you know, I don't know if we ever really give people the tools. I think we just expose them to it. And that's really what it's about, right? Is exposure and optionality. So we're with this podcast trying to expose, you know, colleagues and peers in the coaching industry to different or novel ways of thinking, interpreting, and creating a solution for their environment. We don't know everyone's environment. We know our environment, our experience, and then we're just sharing that to create that exposure and then giving people the option of maybe I'll, you know, do exactly like that. Or maybe I will do, you know, take a couple pieces here and there and apply it to my situation. And that is the gift, right? That's the giving is all we can do is just present and create a more diversified exposure portfolio, essentially. And that's what books are about. Podcasts are about conferences are about. That's what the scholar programs are really about. Um, you know, that's what all this is. It's like, there's only so much exposure Steve and I could give. So creating this server that we're super excited about, as you could hear in the intro from our voice, is about exposure more to like-minded people because we've met people across the world, coaches across the world, who are doing amazing work that no one's ever heard of and who I'm constantly exposed to and goes, I got to level up. Jeez. I had no idea this coach in the UK was coaching at the preparatory level and doing this type of work with, you know, 10 to 12 year olds. It's amazing. So, or someone at the, you know, collegiate level, you know, over here in the Midwest is, you know, doing this type of work with division three athletes. It's phenomenal. So that is actually how we learn the best is being given that exposure and then be given the option. And as coaches, I think if we take that mindset, of that's essentially the nurturing process. And that's all sport is. We're exposing you to difficult physical endeavors, exposing you to pressure situations, exposing you to different um, expectations and ways to relate to a diverse group of people, especially on our track team that you might not have intersect with otherwise. And then now you have the option of how are you going to show up? How are you going to interpret uh, the events? How are you going to grow and learn and be in a better and hopefully see that you're in a more evolved and hopefully a better state of condition, not just physically, not just mentally, you know, not just socially, you know, but holistically than you were before. And that's to me why this game is so much fun and why, you know, I never get tired of it. And I just have a, a love and a thirst and a joy for coaching and talking with coaching and talking about coaching and talking to coaches because of that right there. Love it, man. That was beautiful. Um, and, and I mean that because 
you know what what we try and do and you mentioned this but what we try and do is you know we just try and present information and present things that might help people and you know sometimes we get we're like you know this is probably the answer this is what i've done this is likely the answer and that can be taken off as like oh you guys are just telling it like what you know and saying this is the way but it's not you know (laughs) and it's why if you look at you know i know we talk about it a lot but it's because it's our labor of love but if you look at the scholar program you know you're gonna see athletes and coaches who ran like 30 miles a week and you're gonna see those who run 140 miles a week and you're gonna see coaches from Lydiard to Igloy to you know everybody who you know all run a long time aerobic volume versus like develop your aerobic volume through all intervals essentially Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the reason you're gonna see all that stuff is just that is that you know John and I don't have the answer to everything Um, or even most things, but it's our belief that if we can present information and figure out how all these different coaches and athletes solve the same problems that, that we all face, that we're going to be able to, you know, do this coaching thing better and, you know, upper game. And as you said, that's one of the reasons why we created the server that we did is we're like, well, in the internet world, how can we uh, how can we amplify this and make this discussion better? It's like, you know, the world has Facebook groups, but those are kind of crappy and devolve. So, well, and then too, like you know, you also have to pay the price of Facebook mining all your data. Yeah. So, so <laughs> how, how do we do that in a better way? And that's what we came up with. So, if you you're interested in being part of that journey, you know, come along with the ride with us tell us what we're doing right tell us what we're doing wrong tell us where we're failing at and we're not going to be perfect we're going to try and up our game and and do things a little bit better and that's you know i think that's the running you know uh, joke between kind of like all of us in our little um, peer group of coaches is like you know when anyone has success or any athlete that we work with has success be like oh hey great job you're now the best worst coach (laughs) like (laughs) you know like we gave danny that mackie that title after coaching josh kurt olympic mill okay great you're now the best worst coach because if you you know there's always going to be you're always going to feel like you're the worst coach because you might have one athlete or team really succeed and do something phenomenal and everyone's chasing success because attaining success and you know a high podium finish result in whatever endeavor you aspire to is very difficult, but we all have the commonality of failure. And so it's just also keeping you humble and grounded and knowing that, yeah, this one athlete was great, but Danny's still worrying about like the, like Marta who went to the Olympics and didn't perform well at a high level or Drew Wendell, who's had a totally crappy season, right? He's just as worried and um, frustrated as he is uh, excited and elated, uh, you know, for Josh Kerr for those athletes concurrently at the same time. And that's the beauty of it, right? You can always feel like you get those glimpses like, Hey, I must've worked great. I awesome. We, we, we won or we had a PR, but then you also have the exact inverse too in the same meet sometimes in the same week where it's like, Oh man, I'm the dumbest, worst coach in the world. Like totally screwed that up. Like 
how how did that person get dead last? Their workouts were great. All this stuff was going great, right? And that's where the game is an infinite game rather than a finite game. And the real game we're playing, and you know, going back to James Carson's book, Infinite and Finite Games, or even Simon Sinek's, uh, you know, uh, reinterpretation of that. Those books, what they demonstrate is these infinite games are the games worth playing. These relational games, these getting better games, these just export i call them exploration and discovery games and we do have those finite games where it's a clear time frame start finish clear winner clear loser scores this scores that times this times that but those are simply um stops and chapters in this infinite game that's the book of life and that's what i hope you know everyone remembers about this failure discussion is it is a fundamental part of coaching. It's a fundamental um, cornerstone of any culture and program is how do you address failure? How is failure interpreted? You know, how is failure used to use it used as a vehicle to help people get better? Or is it used as a vehicle to create in the steel fear and something to be avoided? Amen. Couldn't say it better. So, Thanks a lot for listening. As always, come join us on our journey. Check out the Scholar Program and all that we have to offer. And, you know, thanks for uh, being a part of it. So let's continue to up our game and, and get better.